The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield. I regularly complain about the cell phone connectivity that happens on The Money Show. It seems to be terrible during these hours that we are on air. Personally, I'm off air. I experience great cell phone connectivity. We've got pretty good cell phone connectivity in most places, despite the fact that the lines do seem to go awry during peak times of The Money Show. Recently, I was flying across East Africa from Joburg to Dubai to go to COP28. And so you go over Zimbabwe, you go over parts of Malawi, of course, um, you would go over Tanzania. And I looked down at these tiny little remote villages that are barely connected by road, never mind by any kind of signal. And it occurred to me why projects like Elon Musk's Starlink are so important for the future. Nati Ndlovu is a journalist at Tech Central, and Nati is on the line to us this evening from Johannesburg. Uh, today we've got a new member of the Starlink Club, if you like, Nati. I think we've got Mozambique, Zambia, Malawi, Kenya, Rwanda. And Nigeria all signed up to Starlink, and um, Eswatini being added to the network uh, as of today. Good evening, Bruce. Yes, and good evening to your listeners. Yes, Eswatini is the new entrant to the Starlink family. Uh, it seems that uh, a lot of Southern African countries are actually getting connected uh, quite quickly. Okay, and that's good news because, as I point out, the difficulty of putting up cell phone towers over tens of thousands of kilometres, of course, are massively pro- are prohibitive from a cost perspective and from a servicing perspective. I'm guessing that Starlink manages to circumvent the geographical and the physical constraints that traditional cell phone providers have. Um, yes, Bruce, as you said, uh, it's very difficult from a cost perspective for mobile operators to justify the business case to go into rural and remote areas. But uh, Starlink and others like it are finding it, are making deploying uh, these satellites to space cheaper and cheaper. And they're partnering with the mobile operators to offer services to people in remote communities. And so what's the deal with Eswatini then? I mean, I understand MTN is connected here as well as part of the the partnership. And MTN, of course, got a big geographical spread across the African continent. Um, uh, Everywhere except it would seem South Africa. ICASA, of course, recently has been objecting to anybody selling any Starlink connectivity here because it's not yet regulated as part of the very restricted spectrum that exists in our economy. Uh, I wonder where we are in terms of South Africa signing up. Well, there's been much speculation uh, in that realm, and to be honest, uh, uh, SpaceX themselves have not commented on what it is that's holding them back from uh, entering the South African market. But uh, we do know that they've already had uh, type approval for some of their Starlink equipment. So ICASA released um, a memo, uh, I think about two or three weeks ago, where it shows that uh, there, there is Uh, some Starlink equipment that's already approved for South Africa. But then there's also an approval for the spectrum that uh, needs to be used, and that that hasn't come through. Um, But there's no telling when that could happen. Okay, so there's still plenty of water to run under that sort of bridge. But you guys have been speculating at Tech Central quite aggressively that um, certainly Starlink is due for South Africa simply based on I think reading between the lines of the statements coming out of ICASA, perhaps reading some of the between the lines of what Starlink is saying, the mere fact that they're applying for approval of hardware in South Africa uh, through ICASA does suggest that they have an intention or a plan or at least a plan to have an intention or an intention to have a plan or one of those. (laughs) 
Yes, we, 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 we don't know what's happening, so it's even difficult for us to word it, you know, in, 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 with certainty. But uh, I think a multinational company like SpaceX uh, would not uh, start making these moves if they did not have some kind of intention. And we do see with what's happening around the continent that um, it is likely that they also want to enter the South African market as well. It would make complete sense, of course, despite the fact that we are well connected. There are many parts of South Africa um, that would be tougher to connect. Uh, I mean, do you see it as Tech Central? You guys are the leading technology website in the country. As a logical entrant, would it be a viable competitor to the likes of MTN and Vodacom and others? Well, Bruce, uh, to say that it's a competitor might be stretching it uh, because uh, they're essentially complementary services. So what you see okay. is your, your Vodacoms, your MTNs have great connectivity in cities and they have large market share in those cities. When you look at your outlying areas, though, uh, what, what does tend to happen is, and this is happening in other countries on the continent, your mobile operators will partner with a SpaceX uh, which uh, uh, with with a SpaceX or with an Amazon Kuiper, and what they'll do is that they'll just add coverage to the mobile operators' uh, region. So what you find, for example, is MTN is doing this in Ghana and Nigeria, where they're partnering with the likes of Starlink to increase their coverage. It's a fabulous world of technology providing connectivity, of course. And Kosinati Ndovu is a journalist at Tech Central on the Money Show. If you want a really clear indicator of just how frustrated business is getting with Transnet, the Botswana Transport and Public Works Minister has been talking about the fact that the country is getting unsolicited bids from investors uh, to build a rail line to a Namibian port through Botswana that would help avoid South Africa and its disintegrating logistics network. It sounds interesting, but is it plausible? According to Botswana, the 1,500-kilometer Trans-Kalahari railway project is gathering momentum. Professor Jan Havenga is director of Gain Group and also logistics professor at Stellenbosch University. Jan, is it possible? Is it feasible? Is it even a realistic idea that private investors could provide this sort of connectivity for the huge mineral deposits that are in many parts north of our borders? Uh, it is a process that I'm quite familiar with. Uh, in the first place, all the work that I've done for the World Bank, similar projects over longer distances in many parts of the world, in India and on many other places. And secondly, it's a dream that we've always had, uh, is to make that connection between Gaborone and and Khubabas in Namibia is the gap in the railway line. From Khubabas to Halfespade is a railway line already. It's working well. And from Gaborone to, to Gauteng is also a railway line. But to connect them, that dream's always been there, and it's definitely feasible. Uh, I, have, I have no doubt about it. Number one, for all the mineral products that's over there. And number two, an interesting thing that people seem to forget. Uh, if you have a container ship coming from Europe to South Africa, let's say they want to con- deliver containers to Gauteng, the sailing time from Walfish Bay to Durban is five days. So you can cut 10 days of that ship's journey uh, if you deposit those containers in Walfish Bay and then rail them from Walfish Bay to Johannesburg. If you think of it in terms of the shipper, the person owning the container, uh, you save that five days plus the extra day or two that it's going to take you to get it from Durban to Gauteng and getting it directly from Walfish Bay to Gauteng. So in all respects, there seems to be a really good business case for it. 
and I know the numbers. And in terms of the numbers, this could be a feasible project. And it's always been my belief. And I've always dreamt about it, notwithstanding anything about what's happening with Transnet now. So I, I think it's a highly feasible and great idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, the, the minister is saying that uh, countries in the UAE, Chinese, Indian investment, investors have come to him and said, look, it's time for this line to be built. And these guys with lots of money, these are guys with huge vested interests, of course, to bring in product and remove minerals from the African continent for sale on international markets. And therefore... Uh, you know, in rail terms, 1,500 kilometers may seem far to you and me, but in rail terms, it's a fairly short distance. It could be executed fairly quickly, I'm told. I've traveled to Canadian often, which is a train that runs from Toronto to uh, Vancouver. That's nearly 5,000 kilometers. I've seen massive, huge container trains every day that travels the distance. I, I know that the Canadians blow a lot of agricultural product and mining products from the middle of Canada, out by rail. This is all feasible. It depends on volumes. And the volumes is there. But there's one important point about this that I just want to make. And why would one, one want to do this? The southern the subcontinent of Africa needs east-west corridors. Uh, the the north-south north, corridor is actually a colonial... Uh, it, it's yeah. just from colonial times. You know, we pump everything from all the way from copper from uh, the middle of, of the Congo. We pump, used to pump it out through Durban. We need those connections between Maputo and Walsas Bay. And we need the connections between Kala and Lubito. And Kala, the port in the north side of Mozambique, and Lubito and Angola. Those connections are important for the growth of the subcontinent. This is not a pro-South Africa idea. In terms of the logistics of the whole subcontinent, it's better, it's transport distances uh, will be shorter, etc. So it's got nothing to do with, with transnet. But uh, to, yeah. to an extent, yeah. and I'll come, I'll come back to that, because the other reason why you want to do it is ease for a backup. Now, the country at this stage do need a backup because of the dire situation that transnet brought us in. But it's important, though, what I know now, it's much faster. Transnet is going to be fixed much faster than it's going to take to build this railway line. Because the turnaround after the previous management left, and we've spoken about it, uh, from, from, from the middle of October, things have been going better. I'm watching all the data in my observatory every week. And with the new acting management, it is getting better. So uh, I have good. no doubt about it that they do a good job, you know. But... We still need that railway line, <laughs> even if we can fix Transnet. And I think we are going to fix Transnet. There's one or two dangers ahead of us. You know, the minister needs to appoint permanent leadership. He better make a good decision there, otherwise we're going to have trouble. But we also need the railway line. So I'm very happy about that. This railway line therefore predates the, the Transnet troubles, and it's therefore a long-term project, and that makes it more of a sustainable idea. We're not simply, this isn't a knee-jerk response to Transnet. Perhaps it's accelerating the acceptance of it, but it's certainly not a knee-jerk response. If we broke ground tomorrow and started laying tracks, how long would it take to become operational in the 21st century by building this new line? <laughs> I, I'm, a, I'm a real economist. But uh, I more or less know everybody in engineering and this side. I would I would be surprised if it's less than five years, five to ten years around okay. there. It's going to take up. And, and you're very far away from that. There's a lot of feasibility work that still needs to be done. I think if everybody really jumps on the bandwagon now, we might see a train running uh, in five to ten years' time. So, okay. yeah. That gives us some, but, but some you, perspective. But, yeah. yeah. 
Thanks Absolutely. very, very much indeed. Jan Havenha is the logistics professor at Stellenbosch University, also the director at Gain Group. He's got his finger very firmly on the pulse. He's a great discovery producer. Well done, um, because he's got wonderful deep insights into what is going on in, I was going to say, on the ground, but on the rails of South Africa's logistics network, crumbling in many respects. But this Trans-Kalahari Railway, uh, I mean, Botswana and Namibia actually signed an agreement in 2010, agreeing to do this. Um, and so it's been bubbling for quite some time. There's the, the Kalahari Copper Belt in the west of Botswana. There are all sorts of minerals that could be exported more easily from Botswana into Namibia than they can in traditional colonial era rail routes. And we haven't had dramatic development of rail routes, I think, since the, the Sishan Saldana line was developed. And that's been a remarkable success and absolutely necessary for the iron ore market out of South Africa. So, yeah, piece of good news coming through there. But as Professor Jan Hamilcha points out, it's a decade or more away, and that's if we really, really pull. The Money Show. The Markets. To Wayne McCurry we go from Wealth and Investments at First National Bank. This time last week, we're a bit gloomy, Wayne. Things were feeling a bit grim. Things were feeling a little bit oppressive. And then Jerome Powell changed the mood of the world in a single speech, and everyone's gone a bit mad since then. Yeah, Bruce, thank goodness it did happen because it's certainly something that you and I have been speaking about, it seems, forever, that at some stage we will have sight of interest rate cuts and the commodity prices will recover and the commodity shares will go up and the rand's not going to 20, it'll actually strengthen. And then it happens in one day, then it had a little bit of a pullback yesterday, but then today it all seems back on track again when you look at certainly what the platinum shares are doing, but all, all the commodity shares, you know, so the only ones that really haven't caught up with the, 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 the let's say, the, the better environment now is some of our South African industrial shares, our retailers still seem to be taking a little bit of strain. But yes, it, it literally changed in one day, and maybe it, it always was going to change in one day, either a speech or an inflation number or something like that comes out. And that hopefully is the turning point, and I, I think it is. Uh, hopefully at the turning point, and you, you have been very confident on social media suggesting it is the turning point. It's not without its risks. I mean, some members of the uh, Forward Open Market Committee in the very weirdly structured U.S. Federal Reserve System um, mm. have tried to play down the likely impact of the of quick rate cuts and suggesting that yes. you know, the, while there may be cuts next year, they're not going to be quick and vigorous as the market seems to be pricing in. Yeah. Look, what they said was that, that not that there aren't going to be cuts or there won't be the three cuts. They're just essentially saying the markets run ahead of itself a little bit in anticipating these cuts. And, you know, they, I suppose they're just, you know, trying to squash a little bit of enthusiasm. But the market, when you look at the market indicators – you know, of long before the speech, about two or three weeks ago, they were already discounting, you know, four interest rate cuts next year in America. So the forward market in America hasn't really changed all that much. All that's changed is the markets have gone up. So I suppose they, you know, they don't want to ever have to alter the excessive exuberance words again. So I suppose they're just trying to talk it down a little bit.
Yeah, I'm seeing lots of commentary around. So the U.S. has managed to engineer the so-called soft landing that everyone's been waiting for for the last 18 months. And that seems to be likely the most likely scenario. Jobs are being created. Wage rates have gone up. Inflation is coming down. All of those indicators are good. And the U.S. Fed seems to have a handle on it. Some criticism from some of the world's biggest bond investors of prospects for Europe and the United Kingdom into 2024. And now turning their attention there and saying that's same soft landings not guaranteed for those parts of the world. What's your view? It could very, very easily be. Look, uh, I wouldn't put all my money on a soft landing in, in America. When you look at the extent of interest rate increases we've seen in the USA, you know, to come off to engineer a soft landing would be truly remarkable. I mean, these are obviously off a low base, but these are the biggest interest rate increases we've seen, certainly in my lifetime that I've been in the market, as a percentage from where you started at. You know, and just to say it will not have an effect on the economy and we'll all survive, you know, we still think there's a, 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 a reasonable chance of a mild recession. And I suppose maybe a mild recession will be a soft landing. Uh, the UK and Europe may be a little bit different. They, they, their economies maybe aren't quite as resilient because there's one thing about the U.S. and the U.S.'s economy. They adapt to different circumstances at lightning speed. And certainly the, the U.K. and uh, Europe are not nearly as good as adapting, at, at adapting to changing circumstances as what the U.S. is. And nor is South Africa that good at adapting. I mean, South Africa seems to be at the receiving end of permanent levels of bad news. It's just the depth of bad news that changes. I wonder whether or not our economic prospects are at all enhanced by a lower interest rate environment, considering that the policy changes that we demand and require of government are very slow and uh, not really that forthcoming. There have been some progress made on Operation Vulindela, but again, not to the speed with the urgency and with the vigor, enthusiasm, and detail that is required to truly reinvigorate the South African economy next year and beyond. Quite correct, Bruce. I mean, there is one thing that we must maybe give South Africa credit for, is when things are truly catastrophic and absolutely disastrous, and there is no other option other than to act. We actually do seem to act. You know, we wait way too long. We procrastinate and defer it for an eternity but when push truly comes to shove you know things are actually done and I think we're seeing that now we're certainly seeing it in Transnet even though it will take a while for that to manifest itself but effectively Transnet's being privatized we're seeing in Eskom the private sector coming in and that will also take a year or two to truly show uh, its, its merit but you know, when we absolutely are forced to do something that's, that you don't want to, we, either it's unpleasant or it's ideologically unacceptable, when push comes to shove, it actually does get done. And of course, you know, lower interest rates will always help to come back to your question. But the true force behind any economic improvement in South Africa will once again 
as it always has been, will be the commodity cycle. Wayne McCurry, thank you very, very much. Uh, He's from Wealth and Investments at First National Bank uh, this evening, wrapping up his year of contributions to The Money Show. The man is relentless, his views are welcome, and he does have a very fine touch at explaining the intricacies of some of the more complex aspects of what we talk about here. Bruce Whitfield on The Money Show. 6 to 8 p.m. People get freaked out when you talk about uranium because uranium is the stuff that helped create the atomic bomb. Uranium is also the stuff in a far less refined uh, form that is going to be a part of the global energy mix into the future, whether we like it or not. The International Energy Agency says the world will need a doubling of the existing nuclear capacity by 2050. Chris Gilmore is an investment analyst at Selmore Research and is with us this evening. Chris Gilmore, are we seeing investors begin to treat uranium a bit more seriously now than they have uh, for a while? Bruce, good evening. Um, You know, you go through cycles with uranium. Um, Every so often, uh, they get very, very bullish on uranium. It goes through to incredible peaks. And then you get um, things like Fukushima. I've got to be careful how I say that. Um, uh, in, in Japan, when you had the the um, the tsunami, um, you know you have these 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 meltdowns, literally, um, and that causes a major problem, as it did in in 2011, I think it was, when the Germans and a whole bunch of other countries said, "Oh, enough now, we we, we don't fancy nuclear anymore," and the price came off dramatically. But um, if you look at where we are right now, um, the situation is perhaps a little bit different. In fact, it's perhaps a lot different. Uh, The world is very, very energy hungry. So the demand is undoubtedly there. And when it comes to supply of uranium, uh, you're you're getting it supplied from from some very dodgy countries. Kazakhstan, for example, you know, the former um, USSR satellite state. Um, It's not exactly the most stable country in the world. Um, So when you've got a lot of geopolitical risk taking place in in other energy sources, notably oil, um, the the resultant is that uh, uranium also rises in price. Um, So when you add into the mix the fact that more and more cars are are going uh, electric, and particularly in, in China and in the U.S., and in the U.S. particularly, um, if you're going to get anywhere near the kind of projections that Elon Musk and his mates are talking about, the amount of electricity required is going to literally have to double at least by the year 2050. Where's that going to come from? Can't come from fossil fuels. Renewables, I'm a big renewables fan, but I think I have to come to the fact that it, it's, it's going to take a, an awful lot more than we're, we're, we've currently got in terms of wind and solar and the like and hydro. Um, nuclear unfortunately, is going to have to be a big part of the mix. And that's why the uranium prices is, is rising the way it is. And what's so ironic about the whole Fukushima incident was rather than show how dangerous nuclear is, it actually demonstrated how properly managed, even when there is a meltdown, nuclear can actually be a fairly safe alternative to the way in which we generate energy. And we have got this energy crisis in the world at the moment and is precipitated by um, the need to wean ourselves off carbon fuels. But at the same time, the massive disruption that's happened to gas and to oil supplies since the invasion by Russia of Iraq, uh, of, of uh, Ukraine, nearly, what is that, 
that now two years ago in in February. Years ago, um, yeah. we, we've seen huge disruption, and it's added to the inflationary pressure in the world. It's made everything more expensive. It's caused huge hardship around the world, and still we are going to have, I think, a fairly strong aversion based on an emotional rather than intellectual uh, discussion around the use of nuclear energy, which is. Not the same kind of nuclear as the stuff that is used in, you know, explosives and bombs and, and things that scare us when we watch movies like Oppenheimer. <laughs> yes. Look, it's a controlled nuclear explosion. <laughs> uh, and beyond that, I think we also have to bear in mind that technology has improved dramatically in, in recent years. So that, for example, you have small modular reactors these days, which um, can take the place often. Of, of these big reactors. I mean, the, thing, the kind of thing that's being built in the UK uh, at Hinkley Point, Hinkley C, um, that's well over budget in terms of time and in cost. Um, and it'll, uh, when, it's, when it's finished next year, it will produce maybe 3.3 gigs. Well, big deal. Um, uh, the, the, the Chinese are producing maybe 20 or 30 of these a year. Um, so, you know, there's an awful lot of uh, the, the activity in, in the big stuff. But there's a lot of activity also Russia, funnily enough. They're the world leaders in the small modular reactors. Go back 20, 30 years ago, South Africa, funnily enough, was, uh, was, was quite far ahead. And do you remember the pebble bed modular reactor that never got anywhere because of corruption and yeah. um, all, all sorts of stuff? Um, that could have been uh, quite a nice idea as well. So there are plenty of other parts. You, you don't necessarily have to go for the big tanks. There are many, many other types of nuclear uh, that collectively can provide, as you rightly say, Bruce, operationally quite a, a nice clean form of, of energy. Yeah, we're not oblivious to the fact that there is nuclear waste that has to be buried and we don't know how that's going to be dealt with in the future. We make that future generations problem just yeah. like previous generations made the current mess our problem. It's the gift that we give to to future generations. Nuclear power doesn't emit carbon dioxide. And that's the one thing that makes it very, very attractive from an energy mix point of view. Yeah. Um, the European Union even says it's green energy despite the nuclear fallout. So that's a huge positive. Does South Africa have uranium reserves? Can we invest directly in uranium production in South Africa to get some sort of upside out of this um, over the next couple of years? Not that I'm aware of in terms of physical, um, you know, actually specific uh, wells okay. or mines, should I say. Um, it, it is produced as a byproduct of many of the, the gold mines and the like. But um, yes. yeah, in, in Namibia, there used to be the Rusing plant. But um, I'm not aware of an awful lot in South Africa, no. Okay. No, I was just curious on that particular point. Chris Gilmore, thank you. Uh, Chris Gilmore is investment analyst at Selmore Research with fascinating insights into the world of uranium. Uh, uranium, by the way, if you yeah, are frightened of the prospects of uranium falling into the wrong hands, of which much of the world's uranium is already um, depending on your ideology, in the wrong hands. But it goes through many stages of processing before it's ready to use as a fuel in nuclear power stations. It gets mined um, because it's a mineral, and then it gets milled, and then the ore is converted into a fluorine gas. That is then enriched and made into fuel rods. Now, those get loaded into reactors, and after that, the, the fission that releases energy happens. And there are still many other steps that have to happen before this becomes a weapons-grade mineral as well. 
So I'm not too concerned from that perspective. Fukushima, yes, it was terrifying. But at the same time, I think the Germans overreacted. They shut down nuclear power stations in the aftermath of that Fukushima accident, when in fact the Fukushima accident has shown the relative safety, of course, and there's always risk of downside, risk of this, of technologies properly applied, properly developed and properly protected in a really energy. Let's catch up with Dr. Azar Jameen, who is Director and Chief Economist at Econometrics. What is this disconnect, uh, Azar, between growing jobs numbers, growing employment in South Africa, not huge, but still growing and very, very modest to often negative GDP growth? There is a disconnect between those two isn't there? Uh, that is precisely what I identified in the Q, especially in Q3. You know, the media didn't make much of the fact that uh, 399,000 new jobs were created according to the quarterly labor force survey in the third quarter, and then which was equivalent to 2.4% quarter-on-quarter growth. And more even uh, dramatic was the fact that over the course of the year to the third quarter of, uh, of, the, of uh, this year, we saw 979,000 new jobs being created according to the QLFS, a growth rate of 6.2%. Uh, the media said, oh, well, and then the unemployment rate fell for the sixth consecutive quarter down to 31.9% from a peak of 35% and, uh, and the second quarter of 32.6%. And, uh, the, you know, the co- conventional comment that I kept reading from analysts was there was a marginal decline in unemployment, but we still have a major problem. I admit we still do have a major problem, but this disconnect between 6%, uh, 6.2% year-on-year growth and 2.4% quarter-on-quarter growth in jobs and minus 0.7% year-on-year growth in GDP and minus 0.2% quarter-on-quarter growth in GDP is a substantial disconnect. You're saying, one, one asks oneself, if the economy wasn't growing, how come so many jobs were added to the economy? And most of them in the formal sector, Nohal. Absolutely. I do need to question whether or not the quarterly labor force survey can be relied upon based on this disconnect. You've been looking at this quarterly labor force survey, no doubt, for for decades. Um, How reliable is it? Well, that is the big question, Bruce. And uh, and, uh, I'd love to see a little more analysis and discussion of this disconnect because the quarterly labor force survey is conducted amongst 30,000 households. Now, 30,000 households clearly do not represent the entire economy. And so when they extrapolate, statistically, when you extrapolate from such a sample, you end up with estimates of what the outcome can be with 95% confidence. And much is made of the fact that the mean between the two extremes is the figure that is actually then published as gospel as that is the number of jobs that have been created. Whereas in fact, if you look at the 95% confidence limits of statistically what could have happened is we could have added 198,000 jobs or 599,000 jobs. Now there's a massive deviation between the two, but uh, for public consumption, the mean is chosen and that's the middle between the two, 399,000. And uh, the same with the year-on-year figures. The disparity was between 640,000 and 1.03 million. 
and we end up with 979,000. Now, which, uh, the, you know, if you tra- take either of those extremes, statistically, they could still be valid. No, absolutely. And uh, again, lies, damn lies and statistics, as are. You'll be more familiar than most with those, <laughs> with that statement in the way in which um, people treat statistics. It, you know, let's say we created nearly a million jobs. Why does it not feel like it? Why do we not get that uptick in expenditure? Why are we not seeing that being reflected in the tax collection numbers? Why are we not seeing it reflected uh, now, elsewhere? Uh, funnily enough, Bruce, funnily enough, Bruce, personal income tax has been surprising with its strength. And that is another leg to the conundrum. Ah, okay. The way we've been losing tax has been on corporate tax and VAT and everything else. But personal income tax has been exclu- exceeding budgeted growth. So, you know, one can't be dogmatic and say that we're not seeing it in the tax numbers. We may be seeing it in the personal okay. tax numbers, but not in the, the others. The other thing that you quite rightly said, we've also got the quarterly employment survey, which measures, uh, which is collected from uh, 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 registered businesses, 20,000 of them. So essentially it uh, measures formal sector employment. And the figures were published uh, this week and showed, uh, sorry, last week, and showed an increase of 200,000, not 797,000. So there may be something to be said for the fact that that is a more accurate uh, measure of the what is happening to real jobs. But even that with great I mean, still positive job creation when GDP growth has actually been contracting. The other potential theory is where were all the jobs created? In business and financial services and in community and social services. Apparently, there's been a lot of expanded uh, public uh, works programs. And it was it's, uh, government's uh, expanded public works program. Uh, and uh, so they may be temporary jobs, but they are, are jobs nonetheless. And uh, so those are the conundrums that need to be sorted out because really it does have major implications for economic policy. Well, it certainly does, but it does give me some level of encouragement as we wind down for the Christmas season here, Zah, that some things are working. We're not sure exactly what's working or why they're working, but some things are working slightly better than we might have anticipated. There's absolutely no doubt that you're correct, and that gives me encouragement uh, there's also what we normally see is in the final for the four, quarter four figures, which will be published in February. You will, uh, as has been the case in almost every year in the last uh, decade, you see an upward revision of our GDP. Suddenly, the economy is uh, quoted as being that much larger than we thought it was. And uh, so, you know, potentially that's that's the other conundrum that we have. And then people say, but you're not measuring informal sector, but the QLFS does measure the informal sector uh, and it has been growing but not as much as the formal sector in the last couple of years. But the fact, uh, uh, conversely, yeah. mining and manufacturing have seen a decline in employment and uh, maybe that's what we kind of sense in the real economy.
No, exactly right. The announcements from the big mining companies that have come through, particularly the platinum sector companies, um, have been, I think, destabilizing our expectations somewhat. But yes, good and encouraging. Uh, I, I'm not a big believer in the in the gospel of the figures. I am skeptical, and I think that's probably why there hasn't been that much coverage of them, because people have, gone, have kind of dismissed the numbers um, as being just a little bit too good to be true. I suspect that much is, is true as well. Dr. Zajamin, Director and Chief Economist at Econometrics, what we can't deny is that something differently has changed uh, and is in a more positive framework, which I think is encouraging on that basis. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, I've often said, you know, given the massive headwinds that we're facing on the energy front, on the uh, logistical front, on the just uh, uh, public services organization front, it's amazing that this economy has not collapsed and grown negatively. And that speaks to exactly what you suggested. There is some kind of resilience that still keeps us going. And I think that is mainly due to private sector entrepreneurship and uh, people still going on doing about their, going about their daily jobs and uh, we are not collecting. Yep, nobody's got a choice, Azar. Thank you very much indeed, Dr. Azar Jameen, Director and Chief Economist at Econometrics. You either sit on the sidelines and hope that things are going to improve, you either sit on the sidelines and hope uh, that things are going to get better, or you knuckle down and you keep producing and you keep hustling and you keep developing and you keep growing, even just your business. Um, and in that, in, in doing that, you make a substantial contribution. The Money Show. The Africa Business Report. The Africa Business Report brought to you by SAA, the ones who fly SAA's growing route network, now flying to Sao Paulo, Brazil, your gateway to South America. Uh, before we get into Dr. Rutendo Huindingui, the founder of Tribe Africa Advisory and the author of Rumble in the Jungle Reloaded, before we get to telling us about Guinea Conakry, please just tell us exactly where Guinea Conakry is, Rutendo, because it's one of those countries which... I defy most people presented with a map of Africa to point within five countries away of where exactly it is. Great chatting to you, Bruce, and welcome from COP28. I'm assuming you're all copped out. Uh, I'm copped out. I'm so, I'm so <laughs> copped. You, you sound a bit jealous, a bit, a bit envious. But Guinea Conakry, where is it? Guinea Conakry, to make your life easy, is next to Guinea. Bissau. So that's the joys of African countries. Uh, West Africa, uh, right? next to Sierra Leone, Liberia. I think it's also bordered gotcha. by Mali. So uh, west of Africa, it's a small country, Guinea, probably a population of about 13.5 million. Uh, and unfortunately, it's been in the headlines recently, or more literally this week, with regards to a big explosion that happened at one of the oil terminals. Uh, they don't export oil, they, they import it. And probably a sad story, there eight people passed away and currently 84 injuries. What really brought me to um, in terms of the foresight of the story is the fact that Guinea, I don't know if a lot of people know it, but uh, a quarter of the world's bauxite as a mineral is in Guinea. Uh, they produce, they're probably the second biggest producer between, between Russia and China. They're probably number two or three with regards to producing bauxite from a global perspective. And they also produce about 85 million tons of um, of bauxite per year and about 1.8 billion metric tons of iron ore. So it's got a lot of wealth. The downside of it, uh, Bruce, is that uh, it's one of the poorest countries as well. So it's, a, it's, it's another sad story with regards to a country that's well-resourced but not converting that into 
into into economic growth. And uh, the current leader there again took over a coup probably in 2020, 2021, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Mamadi Yeah, It's a long term, long name. Uh, but just something that came out in the front and just to highlight that uh, another country, great potential, great wealth and resources, but unfortunately not producing the economic growth that you expect. So that's the joys of, of Guinea. And um, I think another thing about Guinea as well is that uh, potentially from a, from a political perspective, also a lot of controversial uh, decisions that have happened in the past. Uh, that hub of, 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 of Guinea going into the Sahel region has faced a lot of coups as well. So uh, in the long term, you'll probably find that it's a country to watch with regards to political stability, but from an economic perspective, more or less going to give a number of challenges that are there. I was highlighting with regards to bauxite producing countries, and just to add some statistics to that, in terms of weight ranks, at the moment, uh, China is the biggest producer, producing about 32.6 million tons uh, per annum. Russia and, 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 and Guinea are sort of competing on producing 3.6 million tons mm. uh, per year. Uh, the third place or the fourth place goes to Canada with 3.2.1 million tons uh, per year. And then India at 3.2 million tons per year. So you can see it's, 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 it, it can actually perform at the same level of economic growth as yeah. those, but the challenge is how do you get there? No, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it's always difficult for these uh, for these small economies. And yeah, when things go wrong, it does expose, I suppose, big fractures within the within the economy. Uh, lots of talk about the DRC presidential elections tomorrow. The country is uh, preparing for a, for a big vote tomorrow. How essential an election is this? Look, half of the story is the same, uh, more or less of the same. So you've got Sh- Getty. I don't know if my sound is playing up there, but can you hear me, Bruce? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Chikedi and uh, of Chikedi Katumbi. And yeah. Katumbi. So Katumbi is a billionaire. Uh, he's obviously competing against Chikedi. Uh, as we know, DRC is a big country, 100 million people, 44 million registered voters. So 44% of the, of the country is going there. Uh, with regards to the election promises, nothing new, more jobs, economic growth, etc. Et but I think two key things on the positive side. Uh, this is probably one of the most peaceful elections that uh, DRC will have in terms of the run-up elections, and hopefully that translates post-election. That's on the positive side. On the concerning side, there's a, there's a sort of a, a wild card with regards to one of the promises that Shigeti is highlighted to the people of the DRC in terms of his uh, election commitments is that if need be, he will he will go to war with with, with Rwanda, Kagame. Rwanda and DRC have had a love and hate relationship. And if yeah. that happens, and now we remember the history with Rwanda during Mobutu's second time, Mobutu also underestimated Rwanda because of their size in Kagame. Uh, and it, it translated later on to, to Mobutu being uh, removed from power. So uh, if that happens, not great for that East African bloc. A lot of great activity happened, but a big concern, obviously, that Shekedi is using all of this. We just hope it's a lot of ranting. Uh, and a lot of noise uh, before the, the final elections, but it doesn't translate to further than that. But a bit of a concern there, Bruce. 
Yeah, it's deeply unsettling. It really is. And I mean, I just remember John Webb, who nowadays runs uh, carte blanche as a young reporter, begged to be sent into the DRC. This is about 25 years ago. I mean, and just the, the images he brought back um, from the front lines of that war, the civil war around the DRC, um, just the, the images he brought back of people being bludgeoned to death, but you know, hammers and all sorts of stuff. It just yeah. makes your blood run cold. It really, really does, because the potential for violence is most certainly there. Talk to me then about a much happier story on the opposite end of the continent. And it's something we've been reflecting on over the last couple of days, a couple of weeks, is just the remarkable emergence of Kenya as this incredibly logical global player on the African continent that's boxing so smart, making no enemies, making lots of friends, and um, seems to be doing it to its own advantage. You see, like you've been reading my book, Rumble in the Jungle, uh, the books, but <laughs> I knew I got it. I, I knew I, I drew it from deep within something I'd read a while back. Yes, absolutely. But you're spot on, and I'm actually quite excited with Kenya, especially with President Ruto, because uh, one of the highlights that has just come out is that uh, the EU has just signed up, uh, and I think early on this week, a big um, trade agreement with with Kenya. Uh, currently, Kenya probably expects, exports about twenty percent of its overall exports to uh, to to the East African to to to, to, to the European Union. There's, it was estimated in twenty twenty two about three point six billion US dollars of trade happened between the two countries. Uh, so he's making the right decisions, exporting, contributing industrialization. But I think what's exciting as well is that everybody's kind of coming to court Kenya. Uh, China has just finalized or in, in recent months or recent years have completed a, a big uh, rail project that came to the amount of a plus or minus five billion U.S. dollars. Um, and Kenya is also courting the USA to make a trade agreement. So Ruto is doing one of the things that I always encourage African leaders to do, say that we know our strengths and our weaknesses. How do we position ourselves to take advantage of the global geopolitics in a positive way? In other words, being sort of a global political capitalist. And Ruto is playing his cards right and to the benefit of the country. Uh, everybody wants a slice of Africa or Kenya and is knowing how to play the cards right. So I'm quite excited and looking at those trends. Like economic growth, sticking the right boxes, and the West and the East are happy with it. And that's a very, very, very rare combination uh, to find in this day and age in Africa. So uh, I continue watching that space, Bruce. Can we learn from it? I mean, can we box a little smarter than we've been boxing during the years of 23 and 22? I think we can. I think we can. Um, look, I think a part of the reason is if you look at the internal politics of Kenya, uh, we know that they've gone quite through a romantic traumatic experience over the past years. But I think what contributes to them being politically savvy at a global perspective is internally, uh, from a socio-political perspective, there's stability. And there has to be that stability from an African perspective, from a South African perspective. If we're going to play that global level, uh, the internal politics have to be stabilized to a certain extent. And you have to have strong leadership, but also united leadership, even though um, yeah. there's competitive competition amongst that. And that's a key element, I, I believe, that's contributing to Kenya playing uh, at that global level. 
Uh, we've seen Robbie Brosen's efforts to fight malaria. He and, and of course, um, what, what, oh, what is his name? Uh, Kingsley Holgate um, driving yep. across the African continent with, uh, with, with mosquito nets and Robbie Brosen's initiative with Goodbye Malaria. It's been huge, but uh, science is also playing a huge role. And an African scientist from Burkina Faso is editing mosquito DNA. Uh, it's just this most wonderful idea of taking a, a mosquito and trying to extract <laughs> DNA from it. But nevertheless, uh, how how is this going to work in terms of altering the genome of the mosquito so that it doesn't deliver the same malaria punch as we've become used to over over, over centuries? Yeah, Bruce, and uh, just to give some background context in terms of the, the value and the contribution or the impact that this solution can make before I go into it is that globally, uh, about 249 million people are affected by mosquitoes uh, or, or malaria globally. 95% is Africa. Uh, of the 249 million, about 608,000 deaths happen per annum, 95% obviously happening in Africa. So if there's a solution in terms of malaria, uh, sickness and death to make a positive impact on the continent. The gentleman you're talking about, his name is from Burkina Faso. So another great African story about an African scientist who's contributing in terms of the betterment of Africa, Abudule Diabate. So he was badly impacted by mosquito in his younger days. So he's dedicated his life in terms of solving the problem and heads up the Burkina Faso's Research Institute in Health Sciences. And what he's done in terms of the solution that he's done, which is, which, which is a great story, but obviously uh, the, the, it's a double-edged sword, is that he's created a gene drive which allows uh, him through scientific methods to alter the genetic modification of the female mosquito that contributes to malaria so that yeah. long-term it doesn't produce a generation of other malaria producers. So that's, that's the long and short of it. I'm not a great scientist. One day, hopefully, I'll be intelligent. But the point here, Bruce, is that <laughs> that wasn't a joke. That was a true statement. But uh, I'll carry on. No, no, we all, feel, we, all, we all feel it. <laughs> we look in the mirror in the morning and we know. We know. <laughs> so, uh, but the long and short of it is that it's a great scientific solution from an ecosystem perspective. When you play with Mother Nature, we know hysterically that also has consequences, and the people don't know what are the negative consequences that are there. So, obviously, in terms of writing the situation or producing a solution for Africa, a great story. But at the same time, the concern is what is the impact on the ecosystem going to the future. But another great story from an African scientist who's contributing to the betterment of the continent. Dr. Rutendo Hundingwi. Thank you, Rutendo, very much indeed. Founding Director of Tribe. The Money Show. Investment School. To Philip Short we go. He is a portfolio manager at Flagship Asset Management. And the big question, I suppose, is what 2024 looks like. And we don't like to make forecasts because traditionally forecasts are about as reliable as trying to predict the weather. This time four years ago, who would have thought that we would go on our holidays and come back to a global pandemic whose consequences we're still feeling in our bones to this day? But I, I suppose we've got to try and figure out somehow, Philip Short, what the future looks like. Otherwise, we're going to sit on our hands and be petrified to make any kind of decision at all. Hi, Bruce. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it is our job to 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 make a call. Um, I think the important thing is not to try and do it with any sort of 100% certainty but do it sort of uh, probability-based. So as you get more information, you can get more conviction or less conviction in your calls. 
Okay, so I mean, six months ago, uh, we were anticipating you know interest rates would so, would start coming down as inflation dropped, and then we started getting the signals from central banks around the world higher for longer. And then suddenly, last week, the signals changed dramatically, and probably the most dramatic about shift in signalling that came through from Jerome Powell last week, and it. I suppose indicates just how unpredictable um, the environment is at the moment. But at the moment, the signals seem to be very positive for a, you know, a better 24 than we've had in the last four years. I think maybe just wait till we get into at least February, because who knows what can happen in the next couple of weeks. <laughs> I think I think part of the part of the issue that we're currently seeing in the markets and why everyone is, I think people will in general be confused, and that's what makes the market is that there's two sides to every. Um, bet that, that, that people make, but you've got a, for the last six months, you've had a, a restrictive monetary policy and an expansionary fiscal policy. Um, and when you've got the Fed doing the opposite to what um, Secretary Yellen is doing, you know, that's going to send mixed signals. So we've had interest rates going up. So that's sort of negative from a monetary point of view. And then the big thing for me was in June when the debt ceiling was suspended in the States. Um, and since then, the U.S. has uh, spent two trillion dollars extra, more you know, uh, more than they should have, in six months. So if we put that in perspective, uh, the the debt bill for the U.S. debt bill um, since they became a republic to today stands at thirty-three trillion dollars, and in the last six months, um, they've added two trillion to that. So it just shows you that. Yeah, it's difficult to know. There's, there's there's money coming into the system and there's money coming out of the system, and it's the velocity of the two which make things a little bit mixed. Explain this concept to me, please, Philip, because it, it's it, it's just unconscionable. Um, when you when you look at an economy the size of the United States, yes, it can absorb a lot of trouble. It's got massive shock absorbers built into it. But at the rate at which U.S. debt is rising at the moment, as a result of the global financial crisis and not quite recovering from that before we had entered a period of fairly low growth, and then we had the COVID crisis, and then all of the other mini crises that have happened since then, plus suddenly this massive surge in interest rates, which is unprecedented in our lifetimes, as Wayne McCurry was explaining to us earlier this evening. And suddenly the pressures that will come to bear and have to come to bear at some point in the future as a result of this rapidly rising debt burden have to have a consequence somewhere. And I I wonder whether or not our thinking is too short term if we're looking at 2024 and do we get some respite and do we get a recovery in stock markets and do we start seeing interest rates and inflation coming down when there's a far bigger problem bubbling in the background? I think that's, you know, you hit the nail on the head. Um, There's a massive um, debt issue that is building in the States. And to just show you how confusing it is, well, at least for me in any case, is that the state has been running a fiscal deficit uh, since 2000. And you usually run a large fiscal deficit when, you know, the government gets involved and they need to help the economy. And they that's usually when there's uh, very high unemployment and when the economy is not doing very well. So let's say a very low negative GDP. And in the third quarter of this year, we've had very low unemployment, almost historically low unemployment. And we've had four to three GDP was up 5.2%. And we've, the U.S. has run one of the largest fiscal deficit, deficits this year. So you should not be running these deficits when and accumulating more debt when the economy is doing well. So you have to ask yourself why. Um, okay, some people might say there's a 
uh, an election year coming up, um, you know, that's, that's a, proved a, po a popular conspiracy theory. But why else would they be running this huge fiscal deficit when the economy is doing so well? What's your hypothesis? An election year. <laughs> I, I, um, that's okay. I, 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 I'm not. I'm not 100 percent sure because they did this last year as well. They ran a fiscal deficit, high def, high fiscal deficits. Um, it's just, it's, um, you know, Stanley Druckenmiller, famous investor, was just saying they, it's like a, they, they're spending like a drunken sailor. Um, and there's no, you know, it's politicians as well. It's uh, politicians. It's not just uh, South Africa that has a, a, a special pedigree of politicians. It's it's globally. Yeah, absolutely. And this, we're, we're running the world in election cycles is proving devastating for economies. It's proving devastating for the environment. It's proving devastating ultimately uh, for, for I suppose, for investors. In the short term, however, it does help, I suppose, raise the level of optimism that humanity is in charge and in control and that somehow we'll we'll manage our way through this as we have through many other crises over many other years uh, many, many other sort of uh, lifespans i suppose yeah it's it's easy to in 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 the, in the midst of it all it's, it's it's easy to get sucked into sort of a negative um sort of narrative of thinking about things but they they will sort themselves out um you know it's just i mean looking at pictures of the great depression in the late you know late 1929 it's we came out of that but it, wow it did not look pretty nice to be in at, the, in at that moment no absolutely not and we don't ever want to go back there so let's focus on the short term because that's about the best we can do i suspect um in terms of trying to understand what 2024 looks like and how that is going to affect us and our ability to put kids back in school and food on the table next year um there is an awful lot of change happening in the world the the gdp data that has come out of the United States this year has been positive. It has been supportive of a recovery in stock markets, but it's been supportive of a recovery in stock markets in the United States and not in too many other places. The rest of the world feels like it's been left on the sidelines of this recovery. Correct. And I think that's where that fiscal uh, deficit and that debt ceiling that was suspended um, mm. has really helped the U.S. markets. You know, when, when there's a lot of money in the system, it needs to find a home. Um, and, you know, we, interestingly, I mean, inflation has come down and it seems to be in, coming down to the trajectory that, that, that the market is happy with. Um, but I think the, the liquidity that has been put into the system and how the debt has been refinanced as in the last quarter in the U.S., um, you know, they've replaced funding long-term debt with short-term debt. Um, it all seems for a good cocktail for very short-term um, moving the markets. Okay, so explain that to me then, how that affects us sitting here on the southern tip of Africa with um, you know, a lot of money invested on the JSE, looking for, for growth opportunities for that money, and increasingly a lot of investors who have taken money offshore over these difficult couple of years in South Africa's history. What do we see as scenarios playing out next year? Are you talking about South Africa specifically, or the US, or globally? South Africans, South South Africans with South African money who have put money into this market, but also have been, you know, diversifying away from what they see as as a very challenging and risky environment in this country. So there's there's kind of two parts to the question, I suppose. 
Okay, so looking at South Africa, I think the big thing, the two big things that uh, people have got their eyes on is uh, elections and uh, electricity. You can't grow an economy uh, without electricity. And the election, there are fears on what the outcomes of that may be. So I'm not going to pretend that I have a great handle on what the potential outcomes and the, and of, of the politics is going to be. Um, but I, I would say, you know, if we can just get uh, ESCOM back on the grid, um, then that would be a, that would be a positive uh, for the country. I think looking at the U.S., um, the you know Q3 was a great uh, GDP number, but looking at uh, some indicators and looking at the consumer health that I'm currently seeing and some of the macro indicators that I'm currently looking at, um, it is looking like potentially a much weaker 2024 from an economic point of view, um, Yellen aside. Uh, explain that again. Uh, Yellen aside, I mean the the ability of the U.S. to manufacture growth and to to to, to uh, work its way through crisis has been nothing yeah. short of remarkable. You're you're, you're yeah. forecasting a slowdown in that growth, but there are other countries in the world which are desperately keen to play catch up. There is India, which is growing at a very impressive rate. There is China, mm. which is very keen to break out of its malaise. Um, there is the Philippines, which is an astonishing economic story, which is quite tough to tell in the Western world. But um, there are some real pockets of, of brilliance in the world as to how countries are managing their, their, their domestic environments and are becoming more and more significant as global players. Yeah, so let me just... Um just confirm on that on that Yellen comment. You know, so let's say everything points to a recession, um, and you can even be specific to let's say February 2024. Um, macro is gloomy, growth is going negative. Um, all it takes is for the the Fed to drop interest rates drastically, and for the uh, Treasury to raise a lot more debt and pump that debt into the economy, and then you can postpone a recession. Not avoid it, but you can postpone it. Um, you do, however, kick the can down the road and the recession ultimately will just be worse recession. So they can intervene when they when they want. And they have done that to date already. I think we would have probably seen one by now if they hadn't uh, behaved the way irresponsibly they have. And then on your second point, yes, um, the India's uh, doing really great. Um, two areas that we really like at the moment is Mexico. Mexico is benefiting from the nearshoring that um, America has moved from China to Mexico. Um, Mexico is now its largest trading partner. It's recently overtaken China. And that obviously feeds down to the economy. And if we look at another country like Brazil, um, there seems to be good reforms there, budget surpluses, uh, currency strengthening. Uh, they have uh, quite a low inflation relative to the rest of the world. I think sitting about 4%, whilst the interest rates are still sitting at about 11%. So they've got room to to bring those those rates down, which will also benefit the economy. It's interesting, isn't it, how the the, the the transformation of these economies and so much of it is connected to the United States. Does that not bring an added element of risk to these economies before we start getting too excited about them? Um, it does. It does. I mean, you have to. I mean, if you look at China as that was growing in the early two thousand, and it was going through its commodity boom. That was, you know, it was re relatively insular from the GFC. And it was actually their party to, uh, saving the, the, the global economy. Um, we don't really have an economy as big 
as China was back then that could today help us if if the US does um, cough, especially with China, which is in a weak position itself. So, I mean, maybe India will still do pretty well, um, but pretty much everyone, I mean, like I said, Mexico, you know, they, they're doing really well from the nearshoring of the US. So obviously if the US is not doing well, they will effectively, let's call it, will capture some of that market share of that nearshoring, but they would also still suffer. Yeah, absolutely. Talk to me about South Africa and a view on South Africa. Yes, much depends on the elections, but we can't be sort of stumbling from election cycle to election cycle on the what-if scenarios, or do we simply have to suck that up as a fact of life in South Africa uh, as to whether we go into a very thinly, uh, a thin margin for the ANC, which retains power, which is you know, would suit some people. Uh, you see a massively diluted ANC, which is forced to go into a coalition that it doesn't really want to go into. It doesn't like the idea of sharing power. Uh, or do we start seeing, you know, the beginning of coalition politics, which is you know, not played out particularly well in any of the urban centres where it's been tried on a council by council basis. Uh, and, you know, just I, I, I struggle to see a good election outcome for South Africa next year in terms of bringing peace, stability, and an environment of policy certainty. I just see much more of the same, which is deep dysfunction and uncertainty. I agree with that. I I think I would characterize it as we're either going to get a not-so-great outcome or we're going to get a very bad outcome. Um, I don't see a a really good outcome coming from a political point of view. Um, You know, I think having said that, investors in South Africa must really take a global approach. I'm not saying don't invest locally, but really take a global approach. I mean, on, on the South African Stock Exchange, you've got, let's say, 60 stocks that you can invest in. And they don't cover many sectors. Um, and they're obviously just the one geography. Okay, maybe some of the companies have got operations overseas. But there's thousands and thousands and thousands of, of companies and stocks and geographies and sectors out there that are available to you as a South African. And, you know, I would urge everyone to take advantage of that. Um, our currency, you know, you could see bouts of strength here and there, um, but the long-term trend is definitely negative. And there will come a time, I think, you know, let's say next year or the year after when electricity does come online and our stocks are very cheap, you know, there will be an opportunity to go, you know, quite big into um, SA equities. Um, but I think as your as your, your default um, position should be, more more leaning towards global equities. So what are your timeframes on an ESCOM sort of uplift for South Africa? Certainly next year we anticipate interest rate cuts in many parts of the world, including eventually uh, in South Africa. That'll be supportive of, of shares. It'll be supportive um, also just of of this of, glo- of sentiment in South Africa. I think that'll be very, very helpful. But yeah, the one, the, the big catalyst has got to be um, the the fact that we don't have to wake up every single morning going, I wonder how what stage of load shedding we're at at the moment. Yeah, it's really discouraging because we get told we are we are given, you know, with open eyes, <laughs> telling us a date or they'll give us a specific date when this will the the load shedding will be finished, um, and then that date comes and then it's not finished, and then we get given a new date and then it's not finished again. And, and this is by people who are supposed to be in the know. So if they can't tell you, I'm pretty sure I can't tell you either. I mean, I think the one saving grace out of all of this is that we have moved towards more energy in the private sector. 
Um, that still all needs to be cleared, you know, at a government level from independent uh, power producers and what can and can't go on the grid. But we have moved to a position where we are becoming more and more um, energy independent. I think we're still quite far from it as a country of being energy independent, but we, we're moving there. You know? So that's at least one positive that we can take out from there. But I don't think anyone with confidence can say when um, the energy crisis will be, will be fixed. I mean, the stories that yeah, I, I mean, it's I've so heard great. on... Yeah, sorry. So stories that I've heard just on, on Kuburg, um and, you know, that being a nuclear reactor and how close that thing is to failure and we've we've flown over international professionals that have come over here and looked and couldn't believe their eyes. <laughs> I uh, I don't know if you've seen Chernobyl, the the Netflix series, but uh, that uh, put put uh, children. Uh, no, let, let's let's yeah. uh, no, absolutely, and we should all always be aware, of course, of of the risks of 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 nuclear. But I don't want to be spreading. Chernobyl type vibes about uh, <laughs> no. about the, our, our friends in Milnerton. Um, we're so ingrained and it's so bred into us. A friend was on a flight the other day and it was an evening flight. And when planes come in to land, they switch the lights off um, on, on final approach. And the pilot did that and the lights went off. And this little child in the plane immediately went, load shedding. Um, and, you know, the entire plane erupted in peals of laughter, of course, and huge applause for this little kid. But it just does show how heavily uh, we've become, in, it's being ingrained in us. And there is a, a, a deep load-shedding PTSD that's built into our economy. Um, when we look at the in, at individual companies, their ability to be resilient, their ability to keep growing profits, I think there have been some remarkable results out of remarkable and tough South African management teams and executive teams and staff of companies who I think are thriving despite the environment in which they operate. They've just had to find ways in which to become a lot more effective in delivering their products and services. Yes, I mean, and hats off to them. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's tough fighting with one hand behind your back. Um, I think, yeah. you know, we're also seeing a lot, a lot of people uh, moving out of South Africa or emigrating out of South Africa, and those are still losing as well. You know, with the NHI that uh, they were talking about adopting, I saw a lot of doctors who said, okay, if it is implemented, um, they'll be leaving. Um, yeah. yeah, hopefully it's not a slow burn. You know, I mean, I, I'm an optimist. I'm sure everything will be fine at the end, I think. But with your money, you need to be um, less emotional and more factual. And that factual tees you up for what? Continued U.S.-based investing, continued diversification towards the United States, or more of an emerging markets focus beginning to develop yet, Philip, in your in your worldview? Uh, so, I mean, if I we our average um, PE in our um, equity part of our flexible strategy is setting about twelve times, um, where you've got the U.S. market as a whole at twenty times. So we we have found and selected uh, good, growing, offensive companies around the world, Mexico, Brazil, U.S. as well, um, you know, globally, uh, Japan, and uh, one or two in, in South Africa. That I think if you look, there are there are areas where you can find really good opportunities, but it's not in the the names that you're going to find on the front pages of of newspapers or on the front of um, TV screens. You, you've got to go look for them. 
but they definitely are there and there will always be opportunities just because your university is so large uh, looking globally there are a lot of um, a lot of opportunities and that brings with it the complexity of currency translations and jurisdictions and all that sort of stuff. But again, the, the challenge here is to grow wealth over a period of time. This isn't about making life necessarily deadly simple for yourself, Philip. And uh, and I suppose that that's the great opportunity set that is there for those who prepare to work at it. Um, there is a, I don't know, a, a universe of opportunity. There is. I, if, I mean... There's, uh, we, we recently invested in a, um, a Coke bottler in Mexico um, who produced, uh, you know, Coke's a, a great global brand, and they grew volumes as well as prices in their last results. And if you look at the blue chip European and, and US names, if you look at like Procter & Gamble, Unilever, all of these blue chip, sna- blue chip names, they grew pricing as they passed down in inflation or passed through inflation, but they had negative volumes or very um, the small volumes. So you can find those areas, and that's an emerging market, and that currency is doing well. Um, you, you know, look, look look outside the big names, I would say, is probably my, my best advice. Wonderful. Philip Short, thank you very, very much indeed. Philip Short uh, with us on our investment school this evening, head teacher of the investment school. Philip is not only headmaster of the investment school this evening, but also a portfolio manager at Flagship Asset Management. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield was brought to you by APSA Corporate and Investment Banking, bringing you award-winning trade and working capital funding solutions to unlock the full potential of your business story. APSA is a registered FSP.